Max Kaiser, this is the Kaiser Report. Deglobalization, de-dollarization, you know what is happening. It's the world is kind of drifting apart in a lot of different ways. Uh, we look into it because there's an economic force behind it, as always. Stacy. Max, Santa Claus is coming soon. So you know what that means? It's the season of make-believe that some fat guy is going to fly around the world on a with reindeers and put some uh, presents down our chimneys. And... Make-believe is becoming very real, I notice, around the world. Um, we have now, in the past week or two, uh, you know, Donald Trump has said that Argentina and Brazil, where we're going next week, uh, that they have uh, their currency manipulators. And so he slapped some tariffs on their steel and aluminum, or as the Brits like to pretend it's pronounced, aluminium. Uh, they've slapped some tariffs on that. Aluminium? That's not English. They can't talk good. Right. So this tit-for-tat tariffs, uh, and he claims that there's a currency problem, you know, that the currency, that they're driving their currency lower. There is a de-dollarization going on. There's currency crisis happening all over the world. Currencies are in massive flux, massive volatility. Argentina and other countries are trying to grapple with the fact that the world is moving away from U.S. dollar reserve as uh, reserve uh, currency. And the idea that the U.S. is going to slap tariffs on only encourages more tit-for-tat. Trump also said he's looking for the Federal Reserve to take interest rates negative, which is uh, wealth confiscation by any other means. Remember, back in the 30s, the U.S. confiscated gold. Uh, Trump is into confiscating people's savings right out of their account, just taking it from their accounts using negative rates. Well, the notion that Argentina wanted their currency to collapse by over 50 percent when they just took out a 50, 60 billion dollar loan from the IMF in U.S. dollars, not in their peso, is absurd because that doubles the size of it in real terms for them in terms of how much they now have to pay back. So he's just basically punishing somebody who's already in a precarious situation. Uh, speaking of precarious situations and negative rates, here's a headline where the real, you know, we've had make-believe for so long and that it's, it's becoming more and more real that we're all just going to get lumps of coal. The Dallas Fed president believes ballooning debt could suddenly become a big issue for economy. <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, as anyone, as we've been saying now for years, that you can't cure debt with more debt. Uh, do you have some mainstream economists like Paul Krugman that says that debt is completely meaningless? But even the interest on this meaningless debt is now bigger than the you know, or comparable to the, what money spent on defense. So uh, it's, uh, it's becoming a problem. And a lot of the debt, by the way, in the United States right now is corporate debt. They've incurred $3.3 trillion in debt to buy back $3.4 trillion worth of shares. So you're swapping the real, the assets of the company, for the make-believe, which is um, debt and, and, and reduced actual assets. It's a make-believe for equity swap. Yes. Right? Remember in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark where he swapped a bag of sand for the golden nugget on the pedestal and then the big boulder came to chase him? Uh, this is what's happening in the markets. They're replacing equity with a bag of sand or nothing. And now the big boulder of massive debt is coming to chase them down the corridor. And here's some more make-believe. We, You and I saw this in Belfast back in, I think it was 2012, when the G8 conference was there. I remember their economy was wrecked. 
and they had to put up fake storefronts. Well, here's from the Wall Street Journal. Some empty storefronts on Fifth Avenue are getting dressed up for the holidays, a creative solution during a critical season for the retail industry. You know, <laughs> retail space there is so overpriced that even giant corporations are unwilling to pay it. And so the stubborn uh, standoff between these leaseholders and the retail outlets they're all empty. So in order to create the illusion and continue having a tourist come into Fifth Avenue, they're just going to be met with fake storefronts, nothing they could actually buy. It's a Potemkin village. Yes. Remember when we saw this in Belfast during the Troubles, uh, the at legacy of the Troubles, is that some storefronts are left uh, as a Potemkin village, that they are look like something's going on, but they're actually empty uh, as a way to uh, negotiate what's, you know, the ancient rivalries up there in Belfast, Northern Ireland. So here's another make-believe tweet. The earningless bull market, the S&P 500 P.E. ratio in white versus earnings per share, green. As you see, the earnings per share are uh, tumbling, whereas the P.E. ratio is soaring, stocks are soaring, earnings are flat or, in fact, declining. Well, earnings are shrinking because of deglobalization, de-dollarization, all the easy money's off the table. We've had peak oil, uh, which means all the easy cheap oil is gone. We've had peak everything. Everything that's been cheap is gone, and now we're cannibalizing ourselves. That's what negative interest rates are all about, self-cannibalization. You're eating your arm to stay alive. Uh, eventually, that, that, that is, doesn't work. So well, speaking of the make-believe, there's nothing more make-believe than fiat currency. And of course, what is real is gold. And here is a headline, UK can't be trusted with gold, top Slovak party leader says. So they're going to repatriate their gold from the United Kingdom. And notice that word that the it can't be trusted. And that's always associated with deglobalization and absence of trust be between trading partners. And a lot has to do with, as we've talked about, especially over the past year, the U.S. dollar as a settlements layer. Right. Well, Max and Stacey have been covering this phenomenon for a while. And I think Gordon Brown hit peak paper, the peak paper market, the peak neoliberal moment, the peak post-World War II Washington consensus moment was when Gordon Brown sold half of Britain's gold at the rock bottom price of $250 an ounce. Uh, since that time, gold has swung from being out of favor to being in favor to the point where last year, central banks for the first time were net buyers of gold in a big way. And now they're just ratcheting up either their gold purchases or gold repatriation. I think at an alarming rate, if you want to look at the progress or the prog prognosis for fiat money going forward, it's not good if all these countries are scrambling like mad to get their gold back and to buy more gold. Of course, the, United, uh, the Bloomberg News has been reporting on the entirety of the Eastern Europe, including Hungary, uh, Poland, and they're saying that these governments are absurd for asking for their gold back. These are populist movements, and they should, uh, you know, stop this. But, um, you know, I think this is part of the trend that we've seen since 2016, especially really kick into gear, is that this absence of trust in the status quo. What we've had for the past 40 years since 1971, since neoliberalism was allowed to be unleashed, since the baby boomers came on into the market as the number one voting bloc. That's over. They're no longer the biggest voting bloc, and all their Ponzi schemes are falling apart. In this, uh, Slovakia's former premier said that parliament should force the central bank to bring back the nation's gold stored in the UK, as history has shown that allies can hardly be trusted. Uh, Ex-premier Robert Fico 
who chairs the biggest political party in Slovakia, said his formation is seeking to hold a special parliamentary session on the issue. The gold is not safe in the UK because of bleep, something that's unmentionable due to um, laws in the UK, and possible global economic crisis. So in this situation, he's saying, and I think Alan Greenspan, by the way, would agree, is that unless you have your gold in your possession, you don't have the gold. Well, let me sum up the global economy in just a few words. Uh, number one, uh, banks all over the world have been making incredible amounts of junk loans to corporations to buy other corporations. Those banks, when they have a lot of junk loans built up that are not repayable, they sell them to the central banks for this ever-mounting global pile of treasuries and fiat money that's being created to buy back the junk bonds, the junk debt from the banks who have been just giving it to their friends to buy out other corporations in these massive mergers and acquisition and stock repurchase scams. And that has a finite end date. It can't do this forever. And we're approaching that moment now when the smart people in different countries now in Eastern Europe, the alarm bells have rung. And they're like, you know what? This is an unsustainable Ponzi scheme between junk bond dealing banks on Wall Street and the central banks. And our only protection, and this goes back thousands of years, our only protection has always been owning and buying gold. You want to call it a populist movement? It doesn't matter what you call it. It's going to be survival of the goldest. Those with the most gold make the laws. And in the 21st century, of course, it'll be those with the most Bitcoin will make the laws. But that's going to take a few more years to develop. Read David Graeber's 5,000 years of debt. The fact is that whenever trust is absent, gold rises. And so, you know, you've seen not only China and Russia accumulating gold, but you see since Kaiser Report went to uh, Frankfurt and confronted the central bank, the Bundesbank, about their gold reserves, and they admitted to us that their gold reserves were actually held in New York. They since have repatriated most of it, and because of our <laughs> arrival there and the, them admitting to us that it was held in New York. Uh, so Germany was the big first creditor nation to get their gold back, and then many other nations have followed, including, I think it was the Netherlands, Poland, Hungary, uh, Slovakia is asking for it. And, and by the way, this is like an ancient thing. <laughs> this is a weird quote from what this guy, uh, Robert Fico, says is the issue here. He says, you can hardly trust even the closest allies. After the Munich Agreement, he told reporters, referring to a 1938 pact by France, the UK, Italy, and Germany, which allowed Adolf Hitler to annex a part of Czechoslovakia, I guarantee that if something happens, we won't see a single gram of this gold. Let's do it as quickly as possible. The reason this gold is not in the country where it should be is because of World War II, because Hitler was threatening everyone in Europe. So everyone in Europe put their gold elsewhere in the UK, in the US. And now uh, we're in a post kind of World War II scenario where people are saying, wait a minute, we don't trust the US and we don't trust the UK to hold our gold anymore. We want that gold back in our own vaults, in our own country. And of course, gold is a commodity that doesn't need a third party uh, in, in, in its, its, its value unto itself. It's not like fiat money that has no, no value without a government saying we'll go to war to defend it. Other than that, that has no value. And of course, Bitcoin similarly is, is uh, valuable based on itself. It's self-valuing and it's self-validating, which makes it even better than gold. Uh, but now we're in this period of, of massive scrambling uh, amongst countries to prepare for 
this uh, fiat money collapse. Uh, Deglobalization as well, and you see this again, uh, just like the 1929 to 1930s. Uh, it, it, it's, it's relevant that he points out a 1938 pact because here we have the U.S. slapping sanctions and tariffs on everybody. This is the same thing that happened after the Great Depression. During the Great Depression, everybody was beggaring thy neighbor. So if if they're going to start beggaring thy neighbor, this guy is right that he won't see a that the nation won't see a gram of gold back from the United Kingdom. They've already seized uh, Venezuela's gold, for example. So you're not going to see Slovakia's gold if you don't get it back. Jim Rickards told us that, that here on the show, that the U.S. will seize whatever gold they have in an in a event of a crisis. Uh, Slovakia has about 31.7 metric tons of gold worth 1.3 billion euros in the Bank of England. And remember, it was just uh, in the last few weeks that Poland got 8,000 bars of gold back, which is 100 tons and $8 billion dollars. From, or $5 billion from the Bank of England in terms of their gold. So, Well, here's, a, here's an interesting and fun factoid. Uh, there are approximately 7 billion ounces of gold above ground. That's all the gold that's ever been mined since the beginning of time. And there are about 7 billion people on Earth. So every person on planet Earth, man, woman, and child, can get one ounce of gold. And that would be a great way to redistribute wealth. Anyway, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, much more golden stuff coming your way. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Time now to turn to Dominic Frisbee, comedian, voiceover artist, gold bug, Bitcoin enthusiast, and author of a new book, Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. Welcome back, Dominic. Thanks very much, Max. How are you doing? Oh, awesome. So everyone in America knows that the income tax was introduced after the introduction of the central bank. Are these two related? If so, can you explain a little bit? Yeah, they are very much related, but... Um... It, the inter income tax was introduced to us in America in 1913. Uh, um, America at the time relied almost entirely on tariffs uh, for its federal revenue, and they wanted to find a way of replacing tariffs, as that had caused a lot of tension between North and South, because uh, uh, tension that resulted in, among other things, the American Civil War. And um, so they wanted to find another means of, to source government spending, and that proved to be income tax. 1913, it was introduced. It went up dramatically, of course, uh, when Americans joined the First World War. But even so, most Americans weren't paying, ordinary Americans weren't really paying income tax until the Second World War, 1942. Uh, the Revenue Act of 1942 brought income tax to every man. And there was a famous song that was composed by Irving Berlin. It was actually commissioned from Irving Berlin. Uh, called I Paid My Income Tax Today to Amer make Americans celebrate the joys of income tax. And it contained the lyric, I paid my income tax today, a thousand planes to bomb Berlin, they'll all be paid for, and I chipped in. And was ever there a link more clearly made between tax and war as that particular song lyric? Fascinating stuff. So the, the name of the book is called Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will change our future. So Dominic Frinsby has done a bit of a deep dive into tax and it's some, some fascinating, interesting stories here. And uh, several, can yeah. several candidates on the Democratic nomination are proposing a wealth tax on billionaires. The fact is, however, that is the Fed that prints billions through the Cantillian effect, creating all these billionaires. So should they target the Fed instead? Should we get back this ill-gotten wealth, Dominic? One of the biggest... Uh taxes of all throughout history has been the stealth 
um, tax that is inflation, that is the debasement of money, and it's a tax that you and I and both Max have railed against over the years. Uh, it, Milton Friedman called it taxation without legislation. And, um, yeah, they'd be as well to sort out their currency as they would to be taxing billionaires. Um, do you know, let me ask you a question, Max, do you know where we get the expression daylight robbery from? No. We get it from, we used to have a thing in the, in the UK called uh, window tax, and in fact throughout Europe, where people were taxed on their windows. And this tax went on in the UK for about 170, 180 years. And when MPs finally debated whether this tax was a good or bad thing in Parliament, uh, they cried out, daylight robbery, daylight robbery. And that's because in order to avoid paying the tax, many people blocked up their windows. And this was no small sacrifice, of course, in those days. There was no electricity, uh, in, not even gas and electric, um, gas or oil lighting. Uh, we lit with uh, tallow candles. And so the poor lost their daylight and uh, they lost their fresh air. And it made the many incidences of um, disease in the Industrial Revolution much worse. These cramped, damp, windowless dwellings and that's where the expression daylight robbery derives from right i think also in london architecturally speaking the reason they have that uh basement or the and there's a bit of a railing between the the edifice and the street is also tax related uh, and it created a very distinctive look but it shows that tax policy has the, has many effects that are un, unplanned and in many times uh detrimental and uh talking about taxes the yellow vest movement in france is at its heart a tax revolt uh, on, on petrol. Uh, many, including David Graeber, also suggest that a tax revolt against the Cantillon effect. Your thoughts on what's happening there? Uh, without doubt, it's a tax rebellion. But, Max, every single rebellion, revolt, uprising, revolution in all history has been, at its heart, it's been a tax rebellion. It's re a rebellion against some kind of inequitable taxation, some kind of economic injustice created by the tax system. Most famously, of course, the American Revolution, no taxation without representation. The French Revolution, a, a revolt against the decadence of the upper classes, which were paid for by the peasants. The Russian Revolution, um, the English Civil War, uh, most famously, perhaps, or most clearly was the, um, not most famously, but most clearly, the Philippine Revolution began with the cry of Pugad Lawin, who exhorted citizens to tear up their tax certificates. But this thing, you can go right back through history. The Jews first escaped, fled from um, Egypt. They were trying to escape pernicious taxation. And the ultimate form of taxation is, of course, slavery, where you lose all ownership of your labor. And um, tax hasn't just shaped the world in which, you know, taxes today don't just have unintended consequences. Throughout history, They've had these unintended consequences to the point at which you can actually argue that the entire history of the world, the entire history of civilization, has been shaped by taxation. As I said, every revolution, every war is funded by taxes. But there are all sorts of bizarre um, relations, like, for example, Mary and Joseph were only in Bethlehem to pay taxes when Jesus was born and had Augustus Caesar not levied those taxes. Mary and Joseph would never have been there. Christianity would never have evolved in the way that it did. It's had all these incredible effects on history. The very first taxes um, were levied in ancient Mesopotamia. Taxation is as old as civilization itself. The very first written records we have are tax records. 
Um, these, these, and because tax records tend to be the best preserved records of all, for obvious reasons. Um, historians often, when they're trying to learn about a society, they go to tax records. And the, way, the effect of tax on history has been incredible. And that's why I wrote this book. I'm trying to encourage people to look at the world through this prism of taxation. And when you do, so much becomes clear. Why things are as they are, why things evolved in the way that they did, but also how things are going to be in the future. The name of the book is Daylight Robbery, and uh, Dominic Frisbee is the author. And uh, as we've discussed many times, sometimes you look at an economic aspect to uh, history and you find um, it, it's very elucidating, in this case, in tax policy. Now, Dominic, you believe that the solution to all this daylight robbery is actually, nevertheless, a tax, a land tax, a tax on land, not labor. Why is that less robbery? Why is it better? Uh, what does it look like? Tell us about this. First and foremost, Max, I'm a big believer in low taxes. At the moment, uh, roughly 50% of everything you earn, if you're living in the developed world, over the course of your life will be taken from you in taxes. We, think, we tend to think of as a, a house as the most expensive purchase we'll ever make, but by far and away more expensive is your government. And it's extraordinary. You know, obviously in a slave society, you, you're 100% of what you own is, is, uh, is owned by somebody else. Um, if you look at a, a totalitarian society, pretty much 100% of your labour and your produce and your profit is owned. And then at the other extreme, you look at some of the most liberated societies in history, and they were only ever taxed at 10 or 15%. And this is a number that goes back to the ancient traditions of the tithe. And it's believed that the tithe was a, was a tenth because we have 10 fingers on our hand. It's an easy, it's an easy number to calculate. But yes, so I'm a big believer in low taxes, but I'm also a big believer that we should, and, and the developed world today sits sort of at 50%. It's somewhere in between those two extremes of, in, in ancient Greece, taxes were voluntary. Can you imagine that? Voluntary taxation. And then, of course, North Korea is where everything you own, everything you earn is owned. And we sit in the middle. But So I'm a big believer that we should be back towards the 15 percent mark somewhere around there the more liberated the more inventive the more innovative societies in history were always low tax civilizations but in addition i would tax labor far less 50 percent of government revenue derives from income taxes of some kind or other and as a result the worker is unfairly penalized now if you start out in life with nothing the one thing you have is your work but we tax the worker constantly and heavily on the other hand, we don't tax lax. We hardly tax land at all. So I would replace income tax or a large portion of income taxes with a tax on the rental value of land in its unimproved state. If you've improved land, you've built a house on it or a factory, what you've built on the land should be yours to keep. But the land in its unimproved state, you know, if you're deriving, if you're making a fortune from that, the only reason it's going up is because of the needs of the community and not because of anything that you've put in. And so the idea is that some of that is shared. Now, Hong Kong was, economically speaking, was one of the most successful um, countries of the second half of the 20th century. It went from shantytown shortly after World War II to futuristic city-state in barely two generations. Now, Hong Kong, tax as a percentage of GDP, never exceeded 14%. Income taxes were only levied against the very rich. And instead, 
they had 40% of government revenue came from land taxes. So the model is proven and the model works. The left-wing uh, politicians in America, maybe they should switch from raising income tax on billionaires to introducing a land tax, and that would pretty much do the same thing, Dominic. Well, the left-wing um, politicians and economists believe in much levels of greater government spending than I do, and they want much more government intervention in the economy. Um, I don't by that, I believe that individuals making their own choices make, make much better decisions than governments and bureaucrats. But nevertheless, the arguments, the, the left-wing argument in the UK is for land value tax. And that's an argument that I buy, but I wouldn't tax land as heavily as they propose to. I'd only tax land at maybe 10% of its annual rental value, something like that. You know, you're also looking at the global markets and Forex market and the dollar. Your thoughts on Mark Carney's statement recently that uh, the world needs an alternative to the U.S. dollar as a unit of account. Here, Mark Carney, your central bank over there at the Bank of England seemingly breaking ranks with others and calling out the dollar. Can you give us some insight onto that? We've got about 20 seconds. I don't trust Mark Carney, and he only ever says what's required to be said at any given moment. And so... I mean, yes, the world's probably going to get an alternative to the dollar eventually in, in, in the yuan, but Bitcoin's the way. Independent money. Keep the government out of our monetary system. All right. Well, you heard it from uh, none other than Dominic Frisbee. The name of the book is Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. Thanks for being on the Kaiser Report. Thanks very much, Max. A pleasure talking to you. Oh, great. Yeah, you can find it on Amazon, by the way. Uh, it makes a great Christmas gift. Yeah. If you'd like to get in touch with us, tweet us at Kaiser Report. Until next time, bye, y'all.